Hi, this is Keith Loranger, and welcome to the Real Market Talks podcast. I get the chance to interview some of the most successful, entrepreneurial, and engaging professionals in the real estate industry. We talk about business strategies these experts use to compete at the top of their market, their observations of important trends, and what they find inspiring. In this episode, I interview Jill Lawrence. Jill works as an agent serving clients in the southern Windsor County market of Vermont. Although she was born and raised in Vermont, she left the state and later returned after some time in the South. Jill is an agent with the Real Estate Collaborative, or TREC, which specializes in working with out-of-state buyers looking to make a move into the state. She has some great insights, not only describing appealing attributes to the market she serves, but into the types of buyers she helps and what is bringing them to Vermont. She also shares her experience with development in Vermont and why that looks different than a lot of other markets. Jill also describes the dramatic shift that has taken place in the state, from a time when incentives were developed to draw in new residents to the conditions that have emerged now with an oversaturated buyer's market. If you've not already, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and if you have a few minutes, please rate the show or leave a comment. Jill's contact information can be found in the episode description if you'd like to get in touch with her as well. I hope you enjoy the show and hearing from Jill. Hi, Jill. It's great to have you on the show. Just to start out here, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and the market that you work in? Um, So the market that I work is Southern Windsor County in Vermont. Um, I live in Springfield, so this is the market that I primarily follow and work and am most knowledgeable about. Um, Springfield is a primary home market. And there are some other communities that we will get to that are more a second home. Um, so Springfield, I would say the attraction of her bios, to be honest with you, Keith, is that list prices here seem to be less than a lot of other places in the state. So that does attract buyers. So while our purchase prices are lower, our taxes are our property taxes are higher, right? That's always kind of the thing. So um, so this is mainly the market that I work. Um, I mainly work with people that are buying primary homes. Um, so outside of Springfield, there's also Weathersfield, Casper, Cavendish, and Ludlow. And I service all of those areas as well. And then there are some other towns that I will go to and some other towns that I have sales in as well. But this is mainly the market that I work. And Ludlow, that is where Okimo Mountain is located. So there are a lot of second homes in that community. Um, I think, in fact, 85% of the homes are second homes in that community. So that market is, like, way different than the Springfield primary home market, and it's 20 minutes away. So then um, with Cavendish, Weathersfield, and Chester, those are all a mix of primary and secondary homes. Um, Springfield, Chester, and Ludlow all are communities that have, you know, like a downtown area. (laughs) So they're going to have shopping, they have restaurants. Um, Springfield and Ludlow have grocery stores. I don't know of one in Chester. Um, And then Weathersfield and Cavendish are going to be your more rural towns. Um, they do have like small village centers, but they're just not going to have as many amenities like 
shopping and restaurants and that sort of thing. And even when I am talking about these towns and having these amenities, it's it's still not much. Um, in Springfield, there are, you know, maybe a dozen restaurants here in town, and most of them are like American style food, you know, pizza, burgers, sandwich joints, there's a diner. So it would be nice to have a bit of variety. Um, but yeah, just to kind of give you a sense of what the communities are like. Um, Springfield, the population is about 10,000, and that is considered a larger town for Vermont. Have you seen any sort of demographic shifts or trends over the past five or so years that have been kind of notable compared to other markets? Um, you know, I was thinking about this and I'm sure, you know, the market in Vermont, like everyone wants to move to Vermont and, um, it's a great state. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think just kind of in this day and age where people want more space, um, Vermont really does provide that people want to be out in nature right now. Um, so no, I, I don't really feel like, you know, it seems like young people want to move here. Families want to move here. Older people want to move here. Retired people want to move here. Uh, people that have lived in Vermont before. A lot of people that like grew up here, older people, like they want to come back to Vermont and, and make it their home. So in that sense, that is the biggest change because prior to the pandemic, 2017 to 2019, it was difficult to sell a home here in Vermont. And in fact, the state of Vermont was offering incentives for people to move here and work remotely. I believe they were offering $10,000. So I think it was like a tax thing. So you file your taxes and then you get the money. So it's not like you move here and you instantly get it. But I mean, they were, it was like Alaska where they offer money to people to move here um and at that time too and this was even something that was being discussed 15 20 years ago when i was in high school they started consolidating the school districts so instead of all of the towns having their own elementary schools now it's every two four six towns kind of a a district elementary school which we did see at the middle and high school levels but it was interesting to see it happening at the elementary school levels because enrollment was declining. So they were, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how can we get these smaller schools into bigger schools, right? And then the pandemic comes and all of a the sudden they don't have enough room for students in the classrooms. They don't have enough teachers. So I guess in that way, the pandemic has brought more families to Vermont. So before the pandemic, it sounds like there was actually a struggle to bring people into the state. And then post-pandemic, it sounds like just overwhelmed with the number of people that want to be there. Yes, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. Wow. That's really interesting. Because from my point of view, living in Massachusetts, there's always been sort of a baseline appeal to the northern states, uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. But I guess maybe it was just seen from my perspective as more of a vacation place. But you're saying people want to go there now and make them their their permanent homes. Yeah, I think I think that's a you know the big difference is that yes, Vermont has always been a state that has had second homes. I mean that's that's been a thing for a while. 
um, skiing is big here. Obviously, the summer is beautiful and having lake homes and homes on different ponds, you know, that's appealed to people. And even there are even Vermonters that have second homes just within Vermont, such as those like camps and things that we're talking about. Um, but it, it does, you know, there is still a big second home market here. Um, but I think that that market is changing a little bit because of Airbnbs. Um, so oh, what's I think that, that been like? Yeah, so I think that the second home market is changing a little bit now because now instead of buying the second home for you, you're buying the second home for you and your guests. And so that is an entirely different consideration, right? So although maybe before for yourself, you would be fine with, a camp that's a little more rustic, you know, doesn't have a full septic system, maybe just a whole rain tank, maybe not a drilled well, maybe a dug well, and, you know, kind of characteristics like that, um, that has really shifted. So someone might be looking for that for themselves, but they're not, they're probably not going to let that guess. Um, so, you know, the type of home that these second home buyers are looking for has changed a little bit. Um, as far as like, I think a lot of people um, get hung up on like the, oh, people are buying Airbnbs and taking the homes away from people. Sure. Um, but my response to that is a lot of these houses that are being purchased and used as Airbnbs were already second homes. So there is kind of a trade-off, right? Now, because Airbnb is a thing, we are actually able to have more tourism here in a way because we have that housing. So how can we now shift the labor to match that? So it seems like cleaning and managing the rentals is difficult for people here because it's so new, you know, the demand for it is so new that finding that management and finding that, that cleaner is a little difficult. So it sounds like you're saying there's always been some kind of a demand for second homes. Would you say that that demand, even though it's more for second homes as a rental or an investment type property um, has changed, would you say that that demand for those secondary homes has remained kind of consistent or has it grown as people are looking for the vacation homes or even is it perhaps starting to taper off as we're even further away from the pandemic um, and are people's lifestyles, you know, kind of changing again? What, what are you seeing there? Yeah, so it, it is interesting, right? Because, you know, I just said, yeah, most of these Airbnbs are probably second homes, but you're right. There are some primary homes that were purchased and are now second homes or Airbnbs. I'm yes, absolutely. And the reason that that happened is proximity and then also price point. Um, in the market that I work right here in Springfield, as I mentioned, like 250 and under is very competitive. So those properties that are priced at three and 400, those are really out of reach for a lot of local people. But obviously, sellers do want to get their value for their home. So they're not just going to accept $250,000 for this $350,000 home. So although I don't think that, you know, the demand has increased tremendously for second homes, I think that the second home market has grown a little bit because the primary home owners are being outright. 
it's definitely an interesting dynamic between you know what the local primary home owners can afford and where those second homes start. Yeah. What kind of criteria are buyers coming to you with? What are some of the specifics that they're looking for uh, when they say they're in the market? So for primary home buyers, um, to be honest with you, a lot of it's just about price point. You know, you have a $200,000 budget. What can we get in that budget? Um, It is hard for buyers to be picky right now because inventory is so low but yeah i mean everyone wants the standard three bedroom two bath the more land the better <laughs> i hear that quite often um as far as second homes go i would say they do have more criteria for what they're looking for and generally those people are looking they want to be close to skiing they want to be close to some summer outdoor activity that they can do, whether it being close to, you know, state parks, ponds, lakes, that sort of thing. Um, but what's interesting is that they also want the more unique homes. So the long homes, the A-frame style homes, the chalet style, those have become incredibly popular when, again, before they were difficult to sell. So for the primary home buyer, is three bedrooms kind of the sweet spot? Yes, I would say the three-bedroom, two-bath is probably going to be the most popular home style that you can buy. And what kind of constitutes, in your opinion, more land? Is that an acre, at least? Is that two acres if they can get it? Or are we talking like multiple acres that are being looked for? Um, you know, it's funny. I actually like, went through and thought about this recently because I heard that Vermont has the largest lot size in the country. And I actually just looked that up again because I wanted to know if it was true. And it, it is. It does have oh, the wow. largest. Yeah, I think it's the largest median lot size. And it is at 1.8 acres, which is really interesting to me. Um, yeah. So, And then I was thinking about it and I was like, okay, so how many homes have I sold? or even property with one or more acres. And it really was only like a third of my sale. So that was really interesting to me. Um, But yeah, I mean, the more land, the better, right? So, you know, if your budget is 200,000 and you want a three bedroom, two bath right here in Springfield, you're probably gonna be on less than an acre or less than even a half acre, honestly. Uh, Unless you, you know, really, pick something that needs a lot of updating. Gotcha. What's the demand like for four bedrooms plus? There hardly is one, I would say, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, occasionally, I think that those, I have to be honest with you, I feel like the larger home requests that I've received are from second home buyers. They just want to fit more people potentially into a rental? I think so. And I think that they are more so buying for their extended family too, right? Like, you know, here's Bob and he, his, his brother, John, and then the sister, Susie, like they all want to come. So yeah, they need a four bedroom house at least because yes, they're going to be packing everyone in, but obviously you're not going to fit 12 people into a regular four bedroom as your primary home. I see. So with the limited supply, it sounds like 
those are the general preferences, but uh, people are a little bit more flexible with, you know, looking at what's available just based on this, that situation. I would say that you definitely have to be flexible as a buyer in this market. Um, I think if you really want to get something, you need to be flexible about location and then flexible, honestly, about the size home that you are willing to work with as well. Um, here in Springfield, we do even have like a lot of two bedroom, one bath homes, um, just like smaller homes. And I see a demand for those quite often too. That's actually what my house is. My house is just a two bedroom, one bath, and we are we have a couple of acres. And I talk to people quite often and I'm like, man, my house would be perfect for you. Um, it's, you know, people, young people that just want something small, something easy to maintain, whether they're single or a couple. Um, and then also older people, um, people that are, you know, getting of retirement age, like they, they're just single people and they just want something small that's easy, easy to maintain too. So it's kind of like those two, I would say between the two bedrooms and the three bedrooms, I really don't get a lot of requests for or plus, that's an interesting question. That's interesting. And what kind of things are, so you said people are looking to ski. They're looking at the lakes. Um, you said they have some opportunities for like a downtown with the restaurants and uh, shops and, and things like that. Is there anything else that buyers are looking for when they're checking out the market? Yeah. So I think also like a lot of people want to improve the quality of life. Um, so a lot of people are moving here from out of state and, um, you know, it seems like they're moving here because they want a better quality of life. Um, for some people that is getting away from climates, honestly, for me, that's kind of what it was about. I was like, man, it is hot here in Virginia. Like the summer was so hot, you know, it's oh, 90 plus degrees for months and months on end. So that was part of the appeal for me moving back to Vermont is I was like, I would like to be in, um, you know, for me, this is a more mild climate. I like, I prefer colder weather. So I, you know, I wanted to be back in that environment. Um, and, you know, honestly, just being in the outdoors again, um, living in the city was not for me. And I think with the pandemic and people not being able to travel as easily, a lot of people realize that as well, that, that, the city living is not for them. Um, so yeah, we get a lot of people that moved here from like the Western states, California, Utah, um, Idaho, Arizona. And so a lot of these people are looking for cooler weather. Also, oddly enough, they're looking for water. Vermont is also a very wet state, um, yeah. which does affect our housing as well. Um, we can talk about that, how the water part in that um so yeah so it mainly seems like you know people are coming here for a greater quality of life that's interesting i wouldn't have guessed that people were coming from some of those other states because it's always seemed to me from what i'm hearing from the trends that people from here were looking to go there as well so that's interesting to hear that especially some of those more states that i would associate with vacation destinations skiing wilderness you're saying that they are interested in coming to Vermont and the Northeast as well. Well, it's a similar lifestyle, right? You know, um, yes, they, they can come here and they can hike and they can swim and they don't have to worry about forest fires. 
Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that that's a huge one for a lot of people. Um, but I totally agree with you, Keith. It when I was in high school, like moving to California was the thing, and I I have classmates that went and did that, and um, I think that's a, I think that Muslim came back. You really can't underestimate the benefits of a consistent climate to some extent, even though, as we said before, we have seen some trends and some shifts just from our own personal experiences, whether or not those are are permanent is yet to see. But um, there are a lot of climatic uh, occurrences that are happening all over the globe that are making people kind of question like, you know, where is a consistent place where I can feel some level of security? And when you see some of this stuff on the news, it's really terrifying. And we've been lucky. I think the most that we've had to generally worry about is, you know, heavy snow being inundated. Uh, but in that case, you know, we can, we can plow our way out. Um, sometimes we get some, you know, heavy rains. Um, but for the most part, we haven't really seen like the mudslide, the tornadoes, these other more violent, you know, even hurricanes that we have seen are milder than where you've seen in other parts of, of, of the country. So um, I could definitely see why that would be an appeal if you're somebody that was dealing with that or could be dealing with that. Yeah, um, I do. While we're talking about weather, I, I think that that is a good thing to discuss because I think a lot of the times people are not prepared for it when they move here. And like the weather really does impact your life. Um, so I think that people don't understand how much snow is going to impact their life. Um, but it has to get moved. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, if you're going to leave your house, you have to move it. So whether that is you or whether that is you paying someone to move it, that snow does have to get moved. Um, and then, yeah, I, I agree with you, you know, like really big like storms don't happen here all that often. Um, we, whenever Hurricane Irene was, um, Vermont got hit pretty hard during that. Um, and then this is something that I like totally forgot about living in Vermont is how often the power goes out and will stay out. Um, it's actually not an issue where we are because we're on the same grid as the hospital. But there were a couple of snowstorms this winter where people were out of power for three, four, five days. Can you imagine being wow. without power for that long? You, you're, I mean, your food is all gone. Also, like, what about heating your home during that yeah. time? I hope you have a generator. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen a lot of people realizing they need that and making those purchases and upgrades? Yeah, so the generator is a big one. Um, <laughs> I think if you live rurally, you know, if you live outside of town, it's probably in your best interest to have a generator that you can at least do some things on, you know, whether that's hooking your pellet stove up to it or getting your heating system running or, you know, even just enough for a couple of lights in your refrigerator or whatever it needs to be, I would say. That would definitely be a good thing to plan for. But there were even people here in town um, that were out of power for, for multiple days. So, yeah, if you can have a generator backup, I think that's definitely a good idea. Oh, that's good to know. I feel like that's a really useful tip for somebody who's considering the move. So that's really interesting from the buyer's perspective. 
where do you see sellers going after they sell? Are they looking to stay in town? Or are they kind of just looking for maybe something different, a different scale? Or do they kind of pack up and move somewhere else within the state or otherwise? Um, so honestly, I'm seeing a variety of things. And I, I am glad that you asked this question. Um, so some people are just, you know, they are just moving to a different home. They need a bigger home in their life or, or smaller or whatever it may be. Um, so definitely there are some people. Um, and I think to be honest with you, one of the reasons why our inventory is so low is because there actually are a lot of people like that that want to sell their house and buy something else here, um, but they feel scared of the market because it is a tough market. Um, it is very tight. Inventory is low. Um, mortgages are expensive. It's an expensive thing. But also what I always try to tell people is you do have a lot, a good amount of equity in your home at this point. So maybe let's just start with running the number. That would be a good place to start, right? Um, but then also there are um, sellers that are, are leaving the state. Um, my neighbor actually, um, they moved. It was funny. We kind of switched places. We moved up here from Virginia and they moved down to South Carolina. Um, so, you know, they just like a lot of people during the pandemic, right? And you figure out what you like more and where you want to be. So, yes, I think that there are a lot of people that are moving to Vermont. But what we haven't gotten to yet, Keith, is the fact that, like, if there were all of these people moving to Vermont and there was no one moving out of Vermont, where would these people be living, right? So, so I know that, yes, there are a lot of people incoming to Vermont, but also, like, those, there are some people leaving, too. Um, so, okay, that's, I feel like, been great info on the market. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your brokerage and kind of what your expertise is in, in the area and maybe how you guys do things a little bit different or maybe just tell us about how you guys operate. Yeah, so the brokerage that I'm with is called um, the Real Estate Collaborative. I'll probably refer to it as track most of the time. Um, which are just the initials, and that's kind of what we call it. Um, so Trek is actually a brand new boutique brokerage. Um, my classmates started it, and they asked me to join. Um, and we specialize in helping people relocate to Vermont. Um, so as I mentioned, it is a boutique bro brokerage. So there are two brokers and then two agents that work below them. So it is just small. Um, and we all are from Vermont, we have families in Vermont, deep roots in Vermont, and we all left at some point in our adult lives and made the decision to come back. So the way that kind of we relate to buyers is like, we know what it's like to be a stranger in a community that you're unfamiliar with, and now let us help you learn about our communities. It's, it's probably... Um really helpful for somebody who's looking to make the move to hear from somebody who's done it before. From a marketing perspective, how are you guys finding those types of buyers and how are you connecting with them? Yeah. So, I mean, it's digital, digital marketing, digital advertising, right? Like that is the direction that everyone is going. And honestly, sometimes like I even feel bad when I am sending people things in the mail because I'm like, I feel bad for the environment. I'm like, is this just going to go in the trash? So a lot of, you know, a lot of what we're doing is, is digital marketing 
and um you know obviously connecting with people in that way doing things like this you know we're we're having video conversations and getting to know each other and getting to trust and like each other in that way um so yeah video definitely plays a big role in that whether it is marketing the home or working with a buyer doing those buyer consultations getting to know them um you know being able to provide video tours um and then i also use it a lot in my personal marketing with social media as well because it is such a great way to get people to connect with you without having to be there in person is your office local or do you guys have any other offices in other parts of the countries where you're kind of making these connections as well yeah so the office is local um we actually don't have a physical office which is kind of one of the nice things about it um you know just with the way that the industry has shifted so much most people are working from their homes and so their thing is one why are we going to take up space for you know business space when we could actually just allow another business to be there um, and then the other thing is, like, why would you have that expense in your business when it's not really being used? So when we do meet in person, we either meet, you know, at a local business and support the local business. Um, our, we are also able to use our broker's home when we all need to meet. And then we also meet via video as well. So is there any interest in forming sort of more of a brick and mortar type office or do you feel confident that this sort of way that you're operating is is going to work uh, for a while? And do you, are you looking to potentially expand any other markets with that approach? So actually, me joining the brokerage is actually them expanding into a new market. So um, the market that they mainly work in is like the Barry Montpelier area, which is where we grew up. So yes, I think that they do want to expand into other markets, but I think it'll all be markets here within Vermont. Um, and my understanding of what their plans are for the brokerage are to keep it small. So I think, you know, not having that brick and mortar is going to work for us. Um, we all also like really like being in the community. Um, most of the time, you know, if I have someone that is here in Vermont in person, and I'm going to do a buyer consultation with them, I'm going to do it at my local coffee shop. So I think that there, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to be out in the community when you don't have that brick and mortar. Um, we also all have close relationships with one another. So it, it's comfortable to be able to go over to someone's house or, you know, meet via video very quickly. So I don't really see that happening unless they really change the dynamic and like expand tremendously. I think that the fact that it's small really helps, you know, not we don't have to have that space. I think if there were more agents, it would probably be nice to have that space for meeting and just collaborating. But it sounds like this is working really well for you guys and you're through the tools that you're using are able to make the connections that you're looking uh, for with um, those out-of-state buyers and people who are sort of embarking on a similar journey that you guys took. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and um, I mean, it is really easy to reach people everywhere now. I mean, the world has just become so small. I mean, I'm on Instagram and I'm looking at 
videos from India. I mean, <laughs> when have we ever been able to do that before? So I think, you know, the fact that the world is getting so much smaller is really to our advantage. I mean, there are so many websites available too. It's like you go to Zillow, you go to Realtor, it's all the information is there. You just have to reach out to someone, um, you know. It, so yeah, definitely finding finding buyers is not difficult. It's finding the sellers that is more difficult. So from a social media marketing perspective, how have you found that works for that part of your process? Yeah, so social media is really interesting. Um, to give you a little bit of background on why I got my license, kind of my origin story here. So I've always been interested in real estate. Like when I was a child, I loved going to look at homes. Like I love homes. I just love the layout of them. Yes, I, I love them. So um, I was kind of thinking about getting my license, but then what really pushed me in the direction of doing it was when we bought our house um, because it was such a bad experience that I was like, well, I, one, I can give someone a better experience. And also like people are not educated. So my whole thing with social media and why I want to use social media is one, obviously, like, yes, I do want to stay top of mind. I, I want people to know that I'm in real estate. I'm not going to be a secret agent over here. But also, like, my thing is I just want to educate consumers. So I don't care if you are not going to buy a home for three years and maybe you never plan on buying a home. But if I can just help you give these tips and then maybe you will say to someone else, oh, hey, did you know that having a buyer's agent is, is a thing? rather than just going with the listing agent, you know, like you can have someone represent you. So it's these little things that just, I feel like consumers don't know that I just want to put out there more so that maybe people can become more educated about one of the biggest financial decisions that most people will make in their life. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people who have gone through the home buying process for the first time. And they express their frustration at first, it's the first time they're doing it. So they don't have that background on it, but then how poorly the, pro the, the, the process was sort of curated for them. Um, they felt like they were just finding out last minute about everything and weren't really prepared. Is that kind of a similar experience that you had, or are there any specific things that you found frustrating that you really try to improve for clients you're working with? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> so for me, um, I really wanted more communication. Um, I, as I said, I did not work with a buyer's agent. So I was not working directly with the listing agent. I was working with someone in their office. So while they weren't representing me and honestly, I didn't even know the difference then. I didn't know that as a buyer, I could have representation. So lack of communication was one thing. So in my business, I try to communicate as much as possible. I might send you a text, have a phone conversation and send you an email all about the same like the same topic, because I just really want to make sure that you get the information and you have the information. And the most information will probably be in that email, which is going to be the most specific information, but I just want to make sure that you have it. So yeah, more communication. Um, and then to be honest with you, what made a whole transaction bad was 
like after probably less than 48 hours of us taking possession of our property, our neighbor came to our house and said, you know, this property needs an aseptic system, right? Oh, geez. Which, um, yeah, so I did not know that for certain, but I did have a feeling because I was not given it. When I asked about it, I was told that there was no information. And now looking back at it as a real estate agent, I'm like, well, no information. That doesn't make sense. Like there has, there has to be something, right? Yeah. And with, with good representation, you could probably have somebody kind of guiding you on the process for figuring that out, what you need to know. Absolutely. Yes. I, so the major thing, what we did once we found that out is we had a septic inspection and I didn't even know a septic inspection was a thing. I didn't, we had a home inspection for a house, but we didn't have a septic inspection. So yes, um, you know, knowing what I know now. So yes, definitely having someone experienced, um, you know, kind of guiding the way is, is beneficial for most buyers. So when we were talking before the show, we both mentioned that we had started our careers in the service industry, and that had an interesting effect on how we run our businesses now. Can you talk a little bit about what that meant for you? I think being in the restaurant industry, being in the service industry, a lot of those skills do translate. And I tell people that all of the time. I'm like, this is the same job. I mean, you're doing the same things. You're communicating between parties. You're asking them, what do you want? What are you looking for? And then kind of helping guide them in the right direction. So yeah, I mean, it's all the same. And my biggest thing is I do want to provide good service. I want to, people think that this is a good service, this is customer service. So like that is my most important thing is my business. I know a lot of people really want to do high volume or something like that. But for me, it's just about my reputation, providing good service and getting people into the home that they want and love. Yeah, the importance of customer service just can't be underestimated enough. A lot of the companies that I worked for that I really appreciate what I took away from that, there was always an element of customer service, both in sort of teaching and then in implementing. I feel like I had to kind of learn how to be good at working with the public. It wasn't something that just came naturally to me. But when I saw the way that others who were successful at doing it, um, when I watched them do it, I really gained an appreciation for it because you could see what a difference it made in the way that they ran their business and the sort of resilience and longevity their businesses had because they were really developing relationships with that with that customer service approach. And I don't know if it's technology or you know what it is, but I feel like customer service isn't taught as often or appreciated as much as I feel like it used to be. It's something that was probably one of the top lessons any manager or business owner that I worked with wanted to teach when I was younger. And I feel like there's still an appreciation for it if you're doing it, but it's not as prevalent now, I feel like, in business management in terms of the kind of conversations that I have day to day as it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Well, in response to that, and this is what I actually want to share, I feel like I did not learn good customer service skills until I lived in the South. My customer service and my way of hospitality just changed so much. 
when I was in the service industry up here in Vermont, it was about getting people in and out as fast as possible. How many tables can you take at a time? And this is kind of like what we're talking about, right? Like really high volume. And then when I moved to the South, it was so different. Like the section sizes were like half of what they were up here. And I was like, that's so weird. And, you know, there really was like this emphasis on customer service. And for me, what that meant was learning patience. And I feel like working in the restaurant industry in the South taught me patience. And I have that here in my business as well. I am so low pressure. Sometimes I feel like I'm like, am I too low pressure? I never want to force someone into buying or selling and putting themselves in an uncomfortable situation. Um, so I just, I, you know, really like people to evaluate before we just rush into things, which is really hard in this market. It means a lot of preparation up front. Yeah. And the people that you're working with must respond to that because there's, I think, just an authenticity that comes across with that. Because if you're not trying to pressure them into a sale and you're really trying to guide them in making the decision that's the best for them, they probably really appreciate that and have a higher level of comfort because of it. And do you feel like that's helped in building relationships where people are coming back to you and looking for further guidance or has, have you directly seen um, a, a return in your business from that approach or is it just something that you appreciate doing and you seem to build good, you know, customer uh, client relationships with that strategy? Well, for me, Keith, I mean, my thing is, you know, I understand the rush to buy a home. Like sometimes there is a rush. Um, I have had clients that are needing to move out of their apartments for different reasons, new landlords. Now all of a sudden dogs aren't allowed. The rent is increasing to an amount they can't afford. Um, so, you know, just lots of different reasons. But ultimately, I, I think that when you are preparing to buy a home or preparing to sell a home, um, you have to do a lot of work up front. When you're buying a home, you need to be saving money. You need to make sure that your credit score is at a certain point. Um, and then on the selling side, you do kind of need to do some of the same things if you're going to buy again. Um, but then you also have to prepare the property as well. Um, and as far as like seeing a return in my business, honestly, I, I prefer to work with people this way. Um, I, I like the preparation. I feel like as a buyer, the better prepared you are, the more success we're going to have in the market. And, um, you know, this market, which is very competitive for buyers locally, um, for me, the price point is like 250 and under is very competitive. And if you know that you're going to fall in that range, you know, having a larger down payment is going to be beneficial to you and just having really as much cash on hand as possible. Um, it's going to give you more options for what you can do, um, especially in the market now where I'm seeing a lot of properties are not in moving condition. They will qualify for a mortgage, but they aren't updated to today's buyer standards. So Jill, it sounds like you've had some experience working with clients who want to potentially develop new property in Vermont. 
and it sounds like the state has some unique rules for that process compared to some other jurisdictions. Can you go into a little bit of detail talking about that process and how Vermont is unique? So Keith and I had this this phone conversation and, and, you know, I was talking to him about speaking with this buyer from Florida and this buyer from Florida is calling me and they want connections to a net zero builder or a net zero developer here in the state of Vermont. And so what I had to explain to that consumer is one, I don't know of any. But also um, in Vermont, we are not experiencing development in the way that other parts of the country are. Um, And that largely has to do with Act 250, which was put into place in 1970. So 60 years ago, for 60 years ago, for 60 years, we've had this Act 250. And Act 250 regulates land development. Um, and it, it regulates major subdivisions. So how this affects Vermont is um, typically when you want to build a home on a piece of property or you want to subdivide some land, that's fine. You just go to the town and you fill out the proper paperwork and maybe there's a hearing, whatever. Um, but with the Act 250, what it does is it regulates that land use. So if you have 100 acres that you want to split into 20 lots, you now have to go through the state for your permitting and the people that are going to buy those lots and develop those lots also have to go through the state for their permitting. And it is an expensive process. Um, I had a client that we were working to sell his property. We did sell it last year. It was 20 acres with an Act 250 tunnel and it had a stream about 150 feet from the road. So it would require a bridge across the stream in order to be developed because there wasn't room between the stream and the road. So the permitting process for that, which did include engineer's designs, was going to be $25,000. So that's before you have done anything. Haven't even poured a foundation. So um, it's it's very expensive as well. Um, So right now, Um, There are actually things going on with the state of Vermont that they are trying to change at 250. Um, But my understanding of it right now and what they want to change is just within downtown areas. So for me, I'm like, I don't know how this is going to the development because for me, those downtown areas are already as dense as they can be. Um, you know, I think that this is something that needs to change at a bigger level if we are really going to development. With that being said, we all want to live in Vermont because we do like fewer people. We like nature. We like seeing the same people every day when we go to the coffee shop. So how much development do we really want at the same time? are we being placed out of living here? Yeah, it sounds like from what you're describing, there's an intent um, from sort of the state level and sort of the government level to preserve the sort of residential, more rural areas um, to kind of maintain the qualities um, that are attractive to people and preserve nature and maybe focus some of that development at uh, denser urban centers 
um, in an effort to kind of create that new development, but also preserve, you know, the other awesome qualities about Vermont that people really appreciate. That's really helpful information. So just as we're wrapping up here, if somebody was interested in getting in touch with you, what are some of the best ways that they could reach you? Yeah. So, um, for social media, um, I do have a Facebook business page and I also have my Instagram account and those are both the same handles. So it's at jill.lawrence.realtor for both of those. And then my email address is jill at prec, E-R-E-C-V-T dot com. Um, I will not give my phone number out here, but feel free to look it up and you can get it pretty easily. It is available on the internet. Great. And I will also put all of these in the show notes. So if somebody's interested in talking to you, they can just scroll down and they'll, they'll find all the information there. Well, this was a great conversation. I feel like you shared so many really incredible insights into your market and your business. Um, would love to be able to stay in touch and then maybe check in in a bit and see how things are going. That sounds great, Keith. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. All right. Thanks. Take care. You're welcome. Bye. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed the show. Just a reminder, if you haven't already, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a few minutes, please rate the show. You can learn more about the podcast at the website realmarkettalks.com. Thanks, and I'll see you next week.